listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode one of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. In our minds, payroll tax often stays on the sidelines. It is a state tax after all, so it feels a bit provincial and less important than federal taxes. It's usually not taught at uni, so we tend to know little about it as we start out. And it has a relatively high threshold, so depending on our client base, it might not affect many of our clients anyway. But Forgetting payroll tax can cost our clients, or us, dearly and hence deserves our attention. Even though payroll tax is a state tax, most of the payroll tax legislation has been harmonized across Australia, and it is these harmonized provisions we will focus on today. So even if you're not in New South Wales, this episode will still apply to you. I'm talking to Andrew Fico and Anchor Dow of Revenue New South Wales, my first question to Andrew and Anchor was, how does payroll tax fit into our tax system? Here's the answer. We have federal taxes, which looks at all of Australia as one, yeah. and then you have all of the different state-based taxes. Payroll tax originally was under the federal level. And then it was administered, taken out, given to each state to administer. Oh, okay. Because that was when it first came out, after yeah, the Second World War a, or something. To help compensate for veterans returning yep. back, how to help fund their coming back in, into the economy. or So when it first started, but then it was, it was brought down to the state level. But mm. now in terms of all the other state-based taxes, it's all towards, you know, the state has a certain amount of requirements to its... Citizens and payroll tax brings in roughly around somewhere between 30 35% of the state's revenue. And GST? Well, GST, I don't know the component because it's yeah. brought down by, but in terms of the amount of GST collected in New South Wales, is not the same amount that's redistributed into New South Wales because GST is distributed on a different ratio to what it's collected. So I guess things like payroll tax and duties and land tax and other tax bases. Well, that helps the state drive when what kind of funding it needs because it's a lot more clear on exactly what they're going to get. State taxes are land tax, payroll tax and duties. duties yeah. And what duties exactly? On property transfers, typically. Ah, okay. So the most common one people are aware of. Are what stamp they, duty. They call it stamp duty, but it's, it's officially just referred to as a duty because there's no documents physically being stamped anymore. Everything's electronic. So it's just duties. And so typically when someone sells a house, their property, therefore that transfer has a cost. And at the moment, it's it's probably the highest revenue owner for the state. We can control, the like for example, with payroll tax, the rate, the threshold, contracting the economy or expanding it. Do we need more revenue? Therefore, we might increase the rate or drop the threshold or whatever it might be. So it's all about those economic things, which here at Revenue New South Wales, we don't make those determinations obviously it's a political thing it, obviously power tax in the broad sense is, is there to as a tax which the state can control and that's probably the main reason why payroll tax between the different states the thresholds and tax rates do vary 
in 2007, 2008, the states started to harmonize. So before that, the states were a little bit different, but they started to come together to give a more unified approach to it. It's not 100% harmonized, you know, but things like what is taxed, liable wages, where does the, the tax apply, the nexus provisions, you know, uh, majority of the contractor exemptions, grouping provisions were harmonized. So they are the same in every state. Pretty much. What's different? Wages are the typical thing which everyone's going to be having the similar, same or similar type of definition, but it's when it comes to the, the rate or the threshold, particularly where states will, you know, try to have that manipulation so that they can contract or expand their economy. So they're the key things where they are not harmonised, but the other things in terms of the legislation which aren't harmonised to do with exemptions and rebates. So, for example, in New South Wales, we have a jobs action plan rebate, which is unique to New South Wales. Other states may not, they might have something similar, but it's not the same. We might treat apprentices and trainees slightly different to another jurisdiction. So it's typically around exemptions and rebates that the differences occur. In terms of what what is harmonised, you know, grouping is the same. It doesn't matter which state or territory. The grouping is exactly the same. What's liable? We're looking at remuneration across the whole, you know, different jurisdictions. But with contractors, we've got the six general exemptions, which, except for WA, every state and territory applies. The three specific ones, now that does vary between the states a little bit. But the six general ones, except for WA, is the same in every other state and territory. Is it six? I thought it was seven. There was seven. That's like there is three specific, right? We've we've reduced that to one. So we've got seven, right? But there's still six general and the extra one we have. And then there's other states have the three still. So they've got nine. We have seven. They have nine. But the six main ones are the same. So again, that's a little differences, you know. Mm. That differs between states. but, Mm. But that's what I'm trying to imply here is the six general ones are applied across. And and they're majority of the ones that most businesses apply. It's the the specific ones are really towards an industry or a certain type of contractor. While the six general ones are are type the business that contractor's providing. And if you want to look at the differences, there's a, a website, a, a harmonized website that's been developed called paraltax.gov.au and and basically every state has contributed towards that website and there are sections on that website which identify what's same, what's different. So in terms of, you know, what is peril tax and the admin side of peril tax, the most important thing is that it is a state-based tax. Most individual businesses are concentrated a lot on federal taxes, but there are state taxes that are applied to businesses as well. So payroll tax is a state-based tax. We have our own legislation. So a lot of people make the, the common mistake of trying to apply income tax rules to payroll tax where it doesn't always gel. There are occasions where um, the, the, the rules are the same, but there are some key differences. And it's the, it's the employer that's that's responsible here it's the employer that has to register so we look at the wages paid to the employee but employee doesn't need to do anything towards payroll tax it's the business it's the employer that's responsible for the registration and the lodgement now with registration the legislation actually states 
It's an annual tax that's administered monthly. But to register, you have to view at the weekly component of the threshold. And once you go over the weekly component of the threshold, you're supposed to register by the seventh day of the next month. On our website, we do promote that businesses should register by the um, within the month that their wages exceed that monthly threshold. So although the legislation does talk about proratering the threshold weekly, we try to give a bit more leniency in New South Wales by saying as soon as your monthly wages exceeds the prorated amount of what you'd be entitled to, you need to register in New South Wales. But you need to factor in not just what's happening in New South Wales, you need to factor in what's happening all over Australia. Typically a business, it's an annual tax paid monthly. So you have seven grace days at the end of a month to make your calculation and remit your self-assessed tax. The, the key thing I would say here, and, and this will be our first tip of the day, uh, we'll be giving tips throughout this uh, podcast, will be if you're not registered for payroll tax, the easiest way to do is monitor your monthly wages. And if they're around the $60,000, jump on our website and do a registration. Because it's better to register now and then go over the threshold, then to go over the threshold and start a liability because our compliance, there is an area that's unregistered payroll tax and you don't want to get a letter from the Revenue New South Wales. Some businesses are fortunate enough to be on an annual lodgement frequency where they lodge just the annual reconciliation. So the annual reconciliation is three grace weeks at the end of the financial year where you can review and reconcile, make adjustments, and hence why this is a self-assessing tax, because we allow you to make all your adjustments as well in that final process, that three weeks that you have at the end of the year. Now you've got the whole year behind you. You can look at what changes that you might need to make. Make sure that you, you're, you make a full and true disclosure using our online annual reconciliation process so, and, and make either a balancing payment to um, calculate June your June return itself or claim a refund if you have overpaid throughout the year. So some businesses are allowed to lodge on an annual basis, and the current benchmark for businesses lodging annually is about $12,000 worth of tax a year. So basically working out, that's about $1,000 a month worth of tax liability. We're going to allow those businesses to lodge annually rather than monthly. But everyone at the end of the day needs to do an annual reconciliation and it's really important to get that right because that is what you are judged by. That is when our auditors come through, they're checking that. It's a self-assessed tax, but it is us who determine if you're going to be a monthly lodger or an annual lodger. Now, the rules around that is it is an annual tax administered monthly. So majority of you are going to be monthly lodgers. That's a two-step process. It's a calculation and a payment. Your monthly lodgements is solely the payment. You use our monthly calculator or you do an in-house calculation, it's completely up to you. But as long as you make the correct payment, we're happy. Oh, I see. So the monthly lodgement is, is actually no paperwork. You just transfer an amount. Yes. But your annual lodgement, you can't just transfer an amount because it's your annual lodgement that's analyzed to see if you've paid the correct amount of tax. So we review your wages. We review certain components in your wages. There's a lot of data checking with other agencies, and that's all done through your annual lodgement. So your annual lodgement is that two-step, and it's done through our online process, right? So you log on and you do an annual reconciliation where you are requested to break up the different wage components. Now, it's not a requirement, 
but it's always a good habit to get into because if you're ever audited in an audit, you'll be required to break it up. You can't just say, this is my total wages and that's it. You will be required and you and we provide that facility through our annual... To avoid that businesses don't pay or to avoid that businesses pay very little through the year yes. and then make a big payment at that's the end correct. to yeah. help their cash flow. So our analytics team does a lot of cross-referencing in that regard to, to monitor those types of businesses that might be short paying throughout the year and then doing large bulk payments at the end. So there are systems in place to make sure people aren't... Improving their cash flow. Yeah, Correct. because at the end of the day, it's still your requirement to pay the right amount of tax at the point when you're supposed to lodge. But if, that, you're a, yeah. if you're a monthly lodger, it's not like, yeah, I just put in $5 and I'll do the rest at the end of the year. No, you have to be as accurately as possible to, to demonstrate that you're following the legislation correctly. That We also have this online calculator, which saves all your entries and also allows you to put all those entries into the upload them into the annual reconciliation at the end of the year to save you a lot of time. That means you've already done July through to May already if you're an, uh, a monthly lodger. And then all you're doing is the June component and your annual reconciliation is done for the year. So it saves you a lot of time doing it like that. And being a reconciliation, you can also make adjustments throughout all those other months as well. And if it needs to be, and the key thing is we've both been advocating here is to to make sure you have that annual reconciliation correct by the due date. Using the online payment facility allows you to make a maximum payment of one payment per month for that particular business. Whereas if you use EFT or BPAY, you've got to look up reference codes and things like that. And sometimes some businesses leave the same reference codes from the previous month. So it acts like a top-up payment to their last month, which causes a nightmare, not only for the business who's paying the tax because they get a nasty letter saying, hey, pay your tax for the month, otherwise you're going to get interest and penalty tax. But on our end as well, you we then have some admin to sort out in terms of fixing up this double-up payment. So strongly recommend using the online payment facility. So that actually takes us to the next component, you know, the interesting penalties. How is that applied when it comes to payroll tax? Well, the simplest way to explain that is interest is when was the tax due? It was due by the 7th of the month. You paid on the 12th or, you know, the annual reconciliation. It's due by the 21st of July, but you paid in August. Well, it was due today. You didn't pay for three weeks, so interest is calculated on those three weeks. Penalty tax is a little bit different because penalty tax is applied where the office has had to investigate or process an assessment that was not raised by yourself. There, we've had to identify and your lodgement was incorrect. So we impose a penalty on that. Self-assessed, if you make all the disclosure without the office having to process any of it, it's only interest. Penalty is only applied when, when we have to do the work <laughs> to say. So interest works at market rate, and that's done at a quarterly. I think that changes for us quarterly. And then an 8% premium. So it's market rate plus 8%. And penalty tax starts off at 25%, and it can go up to 75 90%. If you make a voluntary disclosure, so you come forward rather than us conducting an investigation where we won't apply any penalty tax at all. So we've got a 0% penalty tax regime there, but you would be charged the full rate of interest because it, the, the tax is, is late. The market rate does change every quarter. So a rate is reviewed every quarter yeah. and whatever it is at that point, it's promoted on our website. 
and then it's 8% on top. So it's not just the market rate, it's market rate plus eight. So the total is advised. Yeah. So at the moment, the interest rate would hover around nine to 10%. Yeah, at the moment. It, yeah. It's been like that for a while, yeah. last year or so. Yeah. And when it comes to the application of penalty tax, we've got to remember that's only on a tax shortfall during an investigation. So 25% would be the standard. And then it goes up to um, at, least, at most 75% for payroll tax. And that would be the marker rate of interest plus the penalty tax of 25% as the starting point. Mm-hmm. Okay, but, but it can also go down to zero, zero if somebody makes... If, yeah, so if they make a voluntary disclosure or if they can prove reasonable care during the investigation. So if they can demonstrate to us that they took reasonable care where there are a number of factors around that, that would prove that you did everything within your power to do the right thing and there are criteria that we, we would measure that against, we might say, okay, you took reasonable care, therefore we won't apply the 25% penalty tax, but the full rate of interest would apply instead. The key thing to remember here, reasonable care, right? And reasonable care doesn't just mean, oh, my accountant told me this, so I went to my accountant. That, unfortunately, is not reasonable care. You have to demonstrate that you as the business, as the person at the end of the day who is responsible for lodgement, you took it upon yourself to educate yourself on what your requirements were. You weren't just waiting on a third party to give you that information. And ignorance is not an excuse. And so many times we've seen objections lodged where people say, oh, sorry, we didn't know about the tax or we didn't know about this being late or anything like that. That's not a good enough excuse. It's the tax is the legislation's there and people need to be aware of it. If you believe that your review or your assessment's incorrect, you as a taxpayer have rights. They have every right to object. Now, typically that needs to be done within 60 days of that assessment or decision being done so that we can then review that and then make another determination where so it's an independent set of eyes from within our organisation that will look at the case. So a review officer will look over that case and it's not the original auditor. At the end of the day, when you're assessed to when you're reviewed, you are still required to make that payment. And if you haven't made that payment, interest will be accruing. So the tip for the day, the second one is interest is always accruing until payment is made after the due date. doesn't matter if it's in review or not. It's still your requirement to make that payment. That's the same with federal tax as well. Yep. Pay now, fight later. Yeah. And you do have further rights if, because it is an internal review that's done as an objection. If you want to take the matter further because you, dis- you disagree with the decision that's been done in the review, you can take that to, to NCAP, the, the tribunal that's enforced for New South Wales. And that's where you pay a nominal fee. Around $100. And this tribunal has in independent members and they could take that even further if they wanted to, if they disagree with that outcome and take it to the courts. There are options available, but obviously that's the expensive one. So going to NCAT's the cheaper option where you're paying a, a nominal fee of about $100 or so, and then you have your matter, you put your case forward and, and Revenue New South Wales puts their case forward and then you battle it out. 
for a nominal fee, or you could go down the, the courts. Is it a choice? You always have to first go to NCAT before you can go to the courts, or you can go straight you to can, the courts? You can go straight to the courts. Mm -hmm. But you've got to remember, think of it this way. Internally, it's a free. So you have 60 days, free option. Someone else gets a new fresher eyes, looks over the, looks over the file. NCAT is around $100. So it's a very low administrative fee for someone externally to look at it. Courts, you're now looking into the thousands, right? And you're talking New South Wales courts. Yes. The next thing to, to consider is, is reassessment. So now we're talking before about the annual reconciliations and when an auditor does come through, they they will look at the last five years. So the current financial year plus four years going back. And that's a typical standard approach for an audit. So current financial year plus four years back and they're basing that on those annual reconciliations. And that is why it is extremely important to have your annual reconciliations correct. And you can go back and change those annual reconciliations if you realise that something was wrong from previous years and do a voluntary disclosure as we were discussing earlier. You can either claim, um, you can adjust it to make an additional payment, which would attract interest because it is late, or you can claim a refund because some businesses, they didn't realise, for example, that there was a, a rebate for apprentices and trainees. And so they can claim a refund going back five years as well. That's quite long, five years. Yeah, well, that's why under the Taxation Administration Act, their businesses are required to maintain records for the last five years. Mm. And, and, that's, and actually, the Chief Commissioner could go further than that, basing it on estimates, if they believe that there is a, a case of, of fraud, or fraud or evasion. All right, so that brings us to talk about our thresholds and rate. So in New South Wales, the current threshold, that's a tax-free component is $750,000 for 2017-18. It was the same for last financial year as well. And that's tax-free. That means businesses between, you know, zero to $750,000 aren't paying this tax. Is the $750,000, is that similar to the other states or is New South Wales a relative generous state? Or We, we sit somewhere in the middle. Oh, okay. So you're looking at, I think it's Victoria that has a threshold of around $600,000. And ACT has a threshold of 2.1, 2 million, and we're, we're 750. Same thing with the, with the, the tax rate. We're 5.45%. I think the lowest you go is 4.85 maybe in Victoria or 5%, and the highest is 6.1. So we're roughly in the middle. Victoria and New South Wales are the biggest hubs for, for businesses. So, so in terms of... Where we sit, we, we are fairly close, but then you have you have different ways that the threshold is applied. As in Queensland, WA, Northern Territory, they have a sliding scale as well. So they have a point where they have a threshold and then they have a sliding scale for how the threshold is divvied up and then they have a cap. For example, roughly speaking, around $4 million. If you pay wages over $4 million, you don't receive any threshold at all. So they have that approach. This is an area where we are not harmonised and it's and purposely because each state has its own agenda in terms of how much tax it wants to, how much revenue it needs to, to generate to fund its essential services that it provides. Yeah. So, there, so every state has a different rate and threshold and they may have even different regimes like that tiered scheme which Anka was just referring to for Western Australia, Northern Territory and Queensland, but the rest of us have this fixed amount of threshold and but that itself could also be 
minimized because you may not be eligible to receive that full threshold of 750,000. And there are a number of factors that can impact that. So to name, so there's three key factors here to, to keep in mind. First here is part your employment. If you start to employ, say, from the 1st of January, not from the 1st of July, well, how many days worth of threshold are you entitled to? Well, you know, for a non-leap year, we're dealing with 181 days of a financial year. Therefore, you're only going to get 181 days worth of that 750000 for New South Wales. So that's part of your employment. The second one to consider is if you're part of a group of businesses. If you're part of a group of businesses, you get one threshold between all of you. All right. That means in terms of your administration with our office, your one claims a threshold, the rest paid a flat rate of tax. Now, a group is, is multiple ABNs, which are deemed to be all operating for payroll tax purposes under the one umbrella. Therefore, they get one threshold between them all. But in terms of the, the grouping, it is a factor which will mean that you'll either get threshold or you're not. So that's another factor to consider. And then finally is, is the, the situation with the state wages. So this is our next tip for the day. When you're looking at how to apply the threshold, you know, where can I claim the threshold? Don't just focus on that state's wages. You have to look at Australia-wide, okay? Because as Andrew explained, it is, although it's $750,000 in New South Wales, the only way you're going to receive that full $750,000 worth of threshold if you solely employ in New South Wales, if you employ for the full financial year and all the group members only solely employ in New South Wales. Anytime you have your business or any other group member's business that has interstate wages or your business by itself has part year employment, that threshold is going to be adjusted. So one of the most common errors are that, that we come across is a business that predominantly operates in another state picks up one employee in New South Wales and goes, you know, we're paying that employee 80000 90000 100000 you know, whatever the amount is, but we're nowhere near the 750000 I do not need to register in New South Wales. So the key here is you look at your total Australian wages and you look at the different states you're employing in. And then you look at that state's threshold. If your total Australian wages are above that state's threshold and you employ in that state, you will have a payroll tax liability in that state. So you need to make sure you register straight away. So in a nutshell, if you have, uh, say, 10% of your wages in New South Wales, that would mean you get 10% of the New South Wales threshold. That would mean 90% can be claimed of other jurisdictions' thresholds. Can't we just nominate one state to claim all the threshold and then forget all the others? So they'll pick and choose the one with the highest threshold. And then, no, it's a matter of fact. What is your wages breakup between the jurisdictions? And therefore, what percentage can you, you claim of your the, the threshold in that jurisdiction? So our next topic being where, where are wages taxable? And there are three key points, I think, in the way we like to explain this. And these rules are harmonised. So that what we mean by that is that all the jurisdictions across Australia are playing by the same rules here because we don't want to double tax. We don't. So if something's meant to be taxed, it's only going to be taxed once and going to one jurisdiction, not to multiple jurisdictions. So we're going to need to consider these rules we're about to go through on a month-to-month basis and on an employee basis. So where is that worker working for that 
calendar month is what's the determining factor here. So we and we often refer to this as the nexus provisions, but that ultimately means here where are wages taxable, which state's going to get the tax. And for more information about these rules that we're about to go through, we'd strongly advise you to visit our website or the joint website at payrolltax.gov.au and look up the revenue ruling uh, PTA 039, which is a provides a fact sheet with a flow chart which helps you to ask the questions and then give you the right result as to which that you need to pay tax for that particular worker for a particular calendar month. So this actually leads me, before we go through all the rules, our next tip of the day. And the key thing to remember here is only one state you'll be declaring any employees' wages for that month. So depending on the different ways we break this up, we never proportion their wages or the declaration of their wages between states. So you need to determine which state for which month that employee's wages are to be declared. Okay, so the three rules. Okay, so there's a wholly in rule, a partly in rule, and a wholly out rule. Okay, so let's make some sense of this. So the first one is wholly in, and this, and these rules primarily relate, focus on where a worker is performing their services. So if, if a worker wholly performs their, their duties in one jurisdiction for a calendar month, their wages are going to be taxable in that jurisdiction. So if you work in New South Wales, you're liable in New South Wales. It doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter where the head office is. It doesn't matter where you've come from. So you could be dealing with an expat, so an, or I prefer to call them impacts. So someone who's come from overseas and they work the whole month in New South Wales. All right, so all their contracted services for that month are in New South Wales. Their wages will be taxable in New South Wales, even though they're being paid abroad. So the primary rule, which takes precedence over everything else we're about to discuss, is for the wholly in rule, if the person works wholly in one jurisdiction, their wages are taxable in that jurisdiction. This is looked at any given state in any given month. So if it's solely in one state for a month, there's a liability in that state for that month. Okay, okay so that was the wholly in rule. Yep. yep. Now we'll move on to the partly in rule. So the partly in rule looks at those situations where you might have a more mobile workforce, someone who may be working across jurisdictions. They might be a sales rep or in a trucking industry, and you might be driving from New South Wales through to Queensland, through to Northern Territory, and then back again. So which, how do you determine which state to pay the tax to because they're spending different amount of time in each jurisdiction? Well, as we said at the onset here, was that you only pay payroll tax for one particular employee for each calendar month to a particular jurisdiction. So the partly in rule then uses a set of rules, and we're only going to talk about two here. And for more information, as I said, please refer to the revenue ruling PTA 039. But for the partly in rule, when you've got a situation where someone's working across multiple jurisdictions or partly in Australia or part and partly overseas for that month, you look at the partly in rule, which is first and foremost, where does the worker reside? If they live in New South Wales, New South Wales will get that tax. And so how does that work? If they, let's say they do, you know, 5% of their time in New South Wales and then the rest of the month they're in Victoria. Well, because they're partly working in the, in, across multiple jurisdictions and doesn't look at the, the percentage of time or how it's divvied up and then proportion the tax to between the jurisdictions, what you're simply doing is bypassing all of that and going straight to, well, your personnel records indicate that this worker lives in New South Wales. Well, New South Wales will get the tax for that month, even though they've only done 
5% of their time in New South Wales. Then the next scenario. But before we go to the next scenario, Andrew, the key thing to remember here is the fact that we're not looking at where is the work predominantly being done. So somebody might work New South Wales and, you know, they could be in the, they may be working up at, you know, Tweed's Head in New South Wales. And then for some reason they're sent to Melbourne for two days. But where do they reside? They reside in Coolangatta, in the Queensland's you know, jurisdiction. They didn't work a day in Queensland. But because of this rule, you have to follow the, the links. How is that rule applied? Multiple jurisdictions? Yes. Worked in New South Wales. Worked in Victoria. Where do I reside? Queensland. In this circumstance, Queensland is where the peril tax liability lies. And then you'd have to register there based on, you know, if you go over their threshold. So don't focus so much on where the work is done. Focus more on terms of are there multiple jurisdictions for the work in a financial, sorry, in a calendar month? Answer is yes. First principle is where, do, where does that worker reside? And that's based on your records. If a worker always works in New South Wales, he lives in, in Queensland, but close to the border, so always works in New South Wales, and then for one day travels on a business trip somewhere else, that one day would trigger that that month is taxed in, in Queensland. Yes, yes. Following the rules religiously, yes, you would mean that in that, that month there may be a liability in Queensland, Queensland. Okay. The, even though they're typically a, a New South Wales worker. That's why the wholly in one state does not look at any, any other test. It solely looks at where's that work wholly done for that month. The partly in looks at which they have multiple jurisdictions. Well, now we have to go to the tier test. And there's a four-tier test. Predominantly, we're just going to be talking about the two of the main tiers, and, and it goes in order. You can't just handpick which tier you think best suits your circumstance. You have to start with the first one, and that's where the employee's residence is. The second tier, when you can't identify where that employee's residence is, where that business is registered. Where's the ABN number for that business registered? So, and that's based on the principal place of business. So the first tiered test is principal place of residence. The next one is where's the head office? Where's the principal place of business? And that's going by that ABN registered address. And the reason why the rules are there is so that you don't have to split up your tax for a particular employee between multiple jurisdictions. You're only going to be paying to one jurisdiction. And so it's there to make it as simple as possible, really, so that you're not splitting. Because you could have situations where if we base it purely on where a person was paid, well, then a person might be paid in multiple accounts. One might be based in New South, one might be based in Victoria. What do you do in that situation? So the rules are there to make sure that it's for each employee per month, the tax on those wages is going to one jurisdiction. So the key thing here is to understand under what circumstances do I apply the rules? Okay, that, that's the key. It's like a maths equation. Once you learn the equation, you just fill in the numbers and that's it. Mm -hmm. so, that's, so, so far we've gone through the holy in rule. So dealing with one jurisdiction, that's all they've worked in for a month. And then the next one is partly in. So they're partly in, in let's say, New South Wales and partly in another jurisdiction. Or it could be partly in Australia or partly outside of Australia. So they could be working part of the month in New South Wales and then go to Hong Kong for the rest of the month to work. So in that circumstance, then we're going to say, well, first of all, principal place residence, 
If they don't have a principal place of residence, we go to the ne next rule, which is the, where's the principal place of business. Now, most businesses will be able to stop at that point there, where's the where the worker resides. The only time you're going to really be going to the other rules is if the person doesn't have a principal place of residence and the type of worker that would be maybe a person who's from overseas staying in a hotel. So, and, and like Anka said, there are another two tiered test to consider, but you can find them under the revenue ruling associated PTA 039. The final test, the, the final rule, should I say, is the wholly out rule. So this is where a worker is wholly working outside of, a, of Australia for a calendar month. And it, what this means is that there's a liability that's still to be paid if the worker is working wholly outside of Australia, but is paid into, a new, into an Australian jurisdiction. So let's say, for example, I typically work in New South Wales and I'm paid here and then I go to work in the UK. So if I go to the UK for three months for work purposes and I'm continually still paid into my New South Wales bank account, my wages will still be taxable in New South Wales because there it doesn't meet the exemption criteria. And that exemption is I have to be overseas for greater than six months in order to not pay payroll tax on those wages. So as soon as a worker is overseas for longer than six months, those wages are not liable from day one that they go overseas. So, but if they go, they come back, go, they come back, and they're not exceeding six months in that one stay, the clock restarts. Businesses that have their workers mainly working in one state well, and then once in a while a worker goes on a business trip for a day or two days somewhere else. I can't imagine the business is then registering in the other state and you won't you won't need to register in the other state. Let, let me give you an example here and and the thing is here I myself, an employee of uh, Revenue New South Wales, will have meetings with other revenue departments in different states. So throughout the year, I'm employed here so wholly in one state. But there's a month where I'm required to go to a conference or a meeting or some sort in another state. But where do I live? I live in New South Wales. Even though I'm away for a day or two in another state, the first rule is where's my residence? It's only if I'm really on that border and that my residence is in yeah. another state so you're right. we have that this. will apply. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. It still falls back to the fact that I, I reside here, so you don't need to register there. Yeah, you're right. So the example we used was highly contrived in terms of that somebody was living in a different state than yeah. he usually works or she yeah. usually works, and that's why it seemed to be odd. But I agree with you. Actually, now, in 99% of the cases, it, it's, the, yeah. the, the, the it principal place of residence would make yeah, perfect correct. sense. And, and that's the key. That's why these two are the key ones that eliminate 99.9% .9 of the cases. And when we're talking about wholly overseas, so businesses that send their employees wholly overseas, that six-month rule is very important because it comes to continuous six months. It can't be they went overseas for four months, came back, then went overseas for three months, came back. Okay? They have to be overseas for six months continually for there not to be a liability. So and does the exemption then start from the time they left or it starts at the end of the six months? It's once those six months lapse, it's from the start of the six months. It's not any time after the six months. Okay, so they would get a refund. Yeah, they can request a refund in the seventh month or wait till the annual reconciliation. The best way I explained this the other day is when someone was like, oh, you know, I get confused about I have these employees and they go overseas is when someone goes overseas, the work needs to either be done overseas 
All right. In terms of for it to be liable, the work either has to be done in Australia or the payment has to be in Australia for there to be a liability in Australia. But if someone goes overseas, so the work is done overseas and the payment is done overseas, there is no liability. At all, from the first day. From the first day. Mm. So for there to be a liability, there has to be a work in Australia or there has to be a payment in Australia. So keep that as a concept of do I have that? So if you're making a payment here, follow the rules. If they're, if they're working here, follow the rules. All right, so just a quick recap. Wholly in one jurisdiction means that person doesn't matter where they come from. They work wholly in one jurisdiction. They're liable in that jurisdiction. Their wages are taxable in that jurisdiction. Partly in rule, they work across multiple jurisdictions in a calendar month or partly in Australia and partly outside of Australia. Their wages will be taxable in the state in which they reside as the primary answer there. Then finally, the wholly out rule, if the person works wholly outside of Australia, we're going to need to consider if their stay overseas is going to be longer than six months or not. If it's going to be shorter than six months, the tax will be paid to the state in which that person is paid, okay? So where they're physically paid. And if it's longer than six months, don't pay any payroll tax on their wages at all. So if you know, don't even, don't pay from day one. But if you're not sure, you might pay on it and then claim a refund if they end up staying greater than six months. If the work is overseas and they're paid overseas, there's no payroll tax at all. That's another thing we need to make sure we're clear on. So that's the three rules. And right. it's called the nexus rule. We call it, we refer this to as the, the nexus provisions, which ultimately means what's the basis for taxing. And, and here we're talking about where wages are going to be taxed. And finally on this topic is what happens to certain types of payments which relate to multiple months of pay. Now, types of payments that we're talking about here may include bonuses or termination payments or commissions. So these are payments or wages that are, are given in a particular month, for example, that may refer to multiple months. How do you determine which you know, when it's liable, because you might have a, a five-year bonus which has been accumulating. Do you need to adjust the five years' worth of annual reconciliations? The answer is no. Under these, this provision in the Act, basically what it says is that it's going to be liable when paid, okay? And a bonus becomes paid or payable when it's determined that it's going to be paid in a particular month. So if you get an end-of-financial-year bonus paid in August and it relates to the last financial year, you don't need to adjust that last annual reconciliation. You're going to be doing a payment on that bonus as part of the August month payment, which is going to be due by when? The 7th of September, if you're a monthly lodger. Okay, so that's how we need to consider multi-month payments, such as bonuses, termination payments, and commissions. Which brings us to now liable wages. What to include in, in these calculations? So, and the word wages uh, in the Power Tax Act of 2007 is a very broadly defined word, and it might be broader than a lot of our listeners might be thinking. So it's not simply just the amount of money that you take home in, the, in your paycheck at the end of a week. It incorporates a number of different factors, and it's the gross salary and wages. It includes allowances, bonuses and commissions, leave payments, director's remuneration, the value of fringe benefits, superannuation, termination payments paid on someone's severance, shares and option, the value of those shares and options, and then finally, contractor payments, which so, can be summed up. So before we sum up contractor payments, when we're talking about wages, there's a term that Andrew loves to use, and I think that that really encompasses what is being captured 
for payroll tax. And that term is, Andrew? Remuneration. Yep. And what, what does remuneration stand for? What are we trying to capture? Reward for, per, uh, for services performed. Try, I thought you were trying to steal my, my lines here. No, I would never do that. All right. So basically, I, I believe the word wages being so broad, I think there's a word that we could use, which is actually defined in the legislation. It's been added in since 2007, which is that word remuneration. This one word is ultimately what payroll tax is taxing, and that's remuneration. Anything which you consider, if you're going through your company financials and you're all asked to be auditors of a sense, you put on that financial auditing hat when you go through your financials and then you see, for example, that you're coming across these, you're ticking and crossing things that should be included in your payroll tax calculation or not, or you're putting a question mark next to something that maybe you're, you're not sure about. And your measuring stick here is to say, is this a form of remuneration? Is this thing I'm looking at potentially liable for payroll tax based on, is this a reward for a service that's being performed? Because that's what payroll tax taxes remuneration. So that's the key here, right? So a lot of businesses make a lot of different payments to the service providers. And this is the key where a lot of businesses go, hang on, this is an employee, this is a contractor. I don't need to include a contractor, right? But you've got to think of yourself as like this. Did this contractor provide a service to my business? Did I, did I pay them for that service? That's seen as remuneration. So the starting point for that would have to be liable. Now, we have a series of exemptions on contractors. We have series of exemptions and rebates on apprentices, you know, allowances and things like that. But the starting point, whenever I identify any form of remuneration, be it to an employee, be it to a director, be it to a contractor, I have to include it for payroll tax. Once you've done that, then look at the next step of is there an exemption available? Can I exclude a payment, right? You're not going to get those things wrong. But if you go, I'm only paying it to employees, I'm only looking at wages because that's what I give them, that's in their payslip every day or every week or every fortnight, every month, you're going to miss out things like fringe benefits. You might miss out allowances. You might, a lot of businesses don't include salary sacrifice towards superannuation but it's a form of remuneration. We have to understand that term more than just wages. So you have to think broader. And even from that one word, you can also work out what's not to be captured besides what's exempted specifically under the legislation. Later on, we'll talk and touch on what payments are not liable. So for example, when we talk about directors' dividends, all right, a dividend is not remuneration. It's the shares that are performing the work, so to speak, there. It's, so it's not the director's fee. So it's different. But we're talking about a dividend is not remuneration. Therefore, it's not liable for payroll tax. It's, so, it's the same thing as distribution. Yeah, a profit Dis distribution. Profit distribution. It's post-tax. Payroll tax captures everything pre-tax. Okay? So you've got to look at what are the pre-tax payments, not post-tax payments. Okay, so let's go through and, and give a, a high-level summary of the different types of liable wages that are incorporated. So 
The first one I think we should make clear is allowances. Start from that idea that all allowances are liable and then there are certain components which you can leave out. So when we're talking about allowances, there are so many different types of allowances. So it's always safe. It's just assume all allowances are liable. And one of the mistakes which we were talking about earlier on where people confuse income tax with payroll tax is they might apply the rules to do with overtime meal allowances where they are not taxable. For payroll tax purposes, they're fully taxable. So you can't just apply income tax rules to payroll tax. That being said, there are different types of allowances, meal allowances, motor vehicle allowances, accommodation allowances, relocation allowances, overtime allowances, height allowances, laundry allowances, tool allowances, first aid allowances. All of these allowances start from the idea that they're in, and then we're going to tell you some specific rules to do with motor vehicle allowances, accommodation allowances, and any allowance that has a fringe benefits treatment. So with motor vehicle allowances, we're going to allow for an exempt component to be applied based on 66 cents per business kilometer where an employee is using their private vehicle for business purposes. So 66 cents per business kilometer, several ways. There's three ways in which you can substantiate here. So 66 cents per business kilometer, which would be a recording of every business kilometer in a logbook. So that's the continuous recording method, or there's the averaging method. Now, here we are piggybacking on rules associated with the ATO. Now, the, the averaging rule um, would require a business to keep a logbook for 12 weeks, a running logbook for 12 weeks, and then you average that out, and we're allowing you to use that for five years. So the current financial year going forward, four years from then. So the, the first 66 cents are not included in wages? So the 66 cents per business kilometer is what you could take out if you're paying a motor vehicle okay. uh, allowance in this way. That's that's based on a flat rate. If you pay an employee $100 as a flat rate every week, here's $100. doesn't matter if you do one kilometer or if you do 1,000 kilometers. We're just going to give you $100. And you want to exempt that employee's motor vehicle allowance. That employee needs to have a logbook. Okay, they can have a continuous logbook or the averaging logbook, but they need a logbook for you to substantiate, right? And if they do 100 kilometers that week and they have a logbook, 66 cents per kilometer is exempt. So out of that $100, $66 is exempted. So the remaining $34 that you've paid them would be liable for payroll tax and needs to be declared. But if you don't have a logbook, the full $100 needs to be declared. Which brings us to our next exempt component for allowances, which is to do with accommodation allowances. And the current rate, now each year, this is why it may be useful for businesses and tax agents to be registered to our online subscription service where you will receive updates when necessary because rates like this, like the 66 cents per business kilometer, that may change. The rates to do with accommodation allowance each year does change because we associate the exempt component of $266.70 for the 2017-18 financial years, what we're using, which is attached to the Hobart rate. And we, we're allowing businesses to exempt that component for an employee who is staying away from their principal place of residence for business purposes. And with that money, they're meant to find their own room, food and incidentals for that night. So that 266.70 is for wherever they go. Although it is the Hobart rate, we use the lowest capital city as the base. It's not using 
the rate which is um, wherever that they go. So they could be staying in, in, you know, overseas. They might be staying in Dubai. There might be a rate for Dubai, but we're using, we're only allowing businesses to use the the Hobart rate, no matter where they go. The key thing here to remember is the principle of when it's accommodation allowance, they have to be overnight away from their principal place of residence. It's not for day trips. It's not, hey, I went to Newcastle or I, you know, I went to uh, I don't know Dubbo for the day and I came back. I have to be away from my principal place of residence overnight. And the second thing is for business purposes. So as long as you're able to identify those two components, then you can look at what payment was made to them, what portion of that is exempted. Mm. Now, instead of the $266.70, that is broken up into three areas, room, food, incidental. Okay. If the business books that employee's accommodation, so they book the room component, you cannot exempt the full $266.70. Then you have to deduct the room component from the exempt amount. The room component is roughly for the 2017-18 year is around $138 out of that $266.70. So that leaves you with just food and incidentals, and that's roughly around $128.70. Please understand that the allowance is we've given you a sum of money, and now you are required to book your own accommodation, pay for meals, and any incidentals. But if any component refund that, right, outside that allowance, you can't claim that additional amount of that allowance as well. So if, if an employer pays $266 per night, does the employee need to substantiate his or her actual expenses? No. Okay, Sorry. so as long as the employer doesn't pay more than this amount he doesn't have to include that payment in his yeah. wages. We're not looking for you to give us receipts to say, hey, food is $109.35. We're not saying, prove to us you spent $109.35. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is, prove to us that this employee was required to go away from their principal place of residence overnight for business purposes and their total allowance without you, the business actually booking something themselves is $266.70. How that employee decides to, you know, use that allowance, do they stay at the glitziest hotel or do they eat the lavish food? It's up to them. But as long as you're not providing them the accommodation or meals or something like that, that that's not our concern. A reimbursement to an employee for their, exp their business expenses is not subject to payroll tax. So like petty cash type of function, if they purchase something for work, we're not going to capture that. When we're dealing with allowances, all allowances are liable, except for those two components as defined what we've just explained. Now, the only other thing is to do with living away from home allowances, like because certain allowances have a fringe benefits treatment. So LAFA has a fringe benefits treatment, which brings us helps us transition quite smoothly into our next topic being fringe benefits. Now, the golden rule for fringe benefits de declaration for power tax purposes is to simply say that if, if something is FBTable, it's going to be payroll taxable. Okay, once again, if it's FBTable, it's going to be payroll taxable. Now, with a living away from home allowance, there are reasonable benefit limits associated with fringe benefits tax, and therefore it may end up being a nil value fringe benefit and therefore not liable for FBT and therefore not liable for payroll tax. 
that if it's paid above and beyond the reasonable limits, it will attract FBT and it will attract payroll tax. Because FBT itself is a complicated tax in its own right, we, we've tried to piggyback on the rules of FBT by applying that golden rule. So if it's FBT, well, it's going to be payroll taxable. So that means if it's nil value fringe benefit, it's going to have nil value for payroll tax. If it's FBT exempt, it's going to be payroll tax exempt. That means when it, how do we find out what's going to be taxable? The simplest way to look at your FBT return itself. Whatever is going to be showing up as a liable item under type 1 or type 2 of your fringe benefits is going to be liable for payroll tax, but only grossed up using the type 2 grossing up factor, not the type 1, because that incorporates GST and we don't want to tax a tax. So that's why we only use the type 2 grossing up factor, which is currently for 2017-18, year 1.8868. All right, so we're going to allow you to take your type 1 benefits plus your type 2 benefits, multiply it by the type 2 grossing up factor, which will give you the correct answer for payroll tax. So when you're looking at fringe benefits as a form of remuneration, the only thing that you should be reviewing is your FBT return. Because don't look at your PAYG summaries, don't look at reported for fringe benefits, just take the figures off your FBT return, your type 1 benefit, type 2 benefit, uh, multiplied by the type 2 gross up rate. There is an option, an option which is to declare it either on an actual basis or an estimated basis. If you use the actual method, which involves looking at type 1 benefits and type 2 benefits multiplied by the type 2 grossing up factor, you're actually doing this on a month-to-month basis. So if you're a monthly lodger, you'll need to do analysis of your FBT on a monthly basis majority of businesses out there do not do this. This is why we're referring to referring to your FBT return itself. And this is under the method which is known as the estimated or the alternative method. And this is highlighted under the revenue ruling PTA 03 version 3, which we have on our uh, on our website and also on the paraltax.gov.au website. So under this estimated method, what you're required to do is look at your last FBT return which was done at the end of March. We're going to expect you now to pretend that FBT year moves forward to becoming a financial year. So you don't do anything with your figures between April and May, and you're going to make an adjustment in the annual reconciliation instead. So you're going to take, let's say for for argument's sake, we're going to just play with some, some fake figures here of say, let's say your FBT return for last year using that calculation of type 1 plus type 2 multiplied by the type 2 grossing up factor, that answer was $120,000. Now, that $120,000 is your FBT returnable value for payroll tax purposes. From a month, from month to month, from July through to May, we're going to expect you to take one-twelfth of that $120,000. So because it's a monthly requirement to return your payroll tax, you're going to take one-twelfth, which is going to be, in this case, per month. So from July through to May, so for 11 months, you're putting in $10,000 a month. Okay, that means at the end of the financial year, June comes around, you now have a new FBT return that was calculated at the end of March. Now you look at that and you make your adjustment in the annual reconciliation under this estimated method. And you look at the difference. Now, we're basing this on $120,000. It's gone up to $150,000 under the new FBT return. So what do we do? We look at the difference and make that adjustment in the annual reconciliation. 
So how much do we make an adjustment in the annual reconciliation? Well, it's going to be the $10,000 for June plus the difference, which is $30,000. So in the June component of the annual reconciliation, you're going to be putting $40,000. If it went the opposite way, let's say that $120,000 became $100,000, you'd need to negate that, that difference of $20,000. But June was only $10,000 contribution, which you were meant to put in. And therefore, you'll need to take away not only the 10000 for June and make that zero because you can't put a nil figure in the annual reconciliation, you'll need to take $10,000 away from another wage category such as wages. And that's in a nutshell how you calculate your FBT for payroll tax purposes. And this will now give you your next estimate for each month going forward in the next financial year. So following that example before, of it's gone up to 150000 Now every month going forward from July, you're going to be making contribution of 12500 for every month going forward for the next financial year. We also need to keep in mind that because FBT calculation is based on a Commonwealth tax and it covers all the different jurisdictions, you need to work out what belongs to New South Wales. Now, that's very simple if all you do is employ in New South Wales because the whole return will belong to New South Wales. But if you don't know what component of an FBT return belongs to New South Wales, we advise businesses to look at their wage level as a proportion of total Australian wages and say, okay, well, 50% of our wages belongs to New South Wales. Well, we'll use 50% of that FBT calculation, which we went through earlier. So that's how you'd need to proportion between the state's when looking at the fringe benefits. Another common mistake that some businesses actually make um, is using reportable values. Do not use reportable values when you're calculating fringe benefits for payroll tax purposes because you'll be under-declaring. Because under reportable values, you leave out the first $2,000. Another common mistake that businesses do is to use incorporate the type 1 grossing up factor. This is going to, once again, lead to overpaying your payroll tax because you're now including the GST component. So remember to only multiply by the type two grossing up factor, the lower of the two. And finally, salary sacrifice towards a fringe benefit is not to be included. The reason being is because we're taking the value of that taxable item, that the taxable amount of that fringe benefit. So if let's say, for example, the most common types of fringe benefits are motor vehicles. All right. So once that person gets $100,000 a year and then they salary sacrifice $10,000 towards a novated lease. The $10,000, which is salary sacrifice, is not to be included. So their wages will be $90,000, but the value of that fringe benefit itself, that motor vehicle, is as per the fringe benefits calculation. And that will often render a, a value higher than that salary sacrificed amount. So that's um, what you would need to include, the value of that fringe benefit rather than the salary sacrificed component there. The key thing to remember here is when we're looking at FBT, we're taking the value from the FBT return, right? That's our source document. Be it, you know, are you going to be declaring it as the actual amount or the estimate amount? But at the end of the day, when the annual rec comes around, it's the value as of the FBT return and no other document. That That's what we're looking at. And when it comes to FBT, salary sacrifice towards novated lease is not included, but salary sacrifice towards superannuation is liable for payroll tax. So when we're looking at, hey, uh, is there any salary sacrifice by any employees, by the company directors, 
towards superannuation, we need to include that for payroll tax. We need to include it as part of gross wages, or we need to deduct it from gross wages as is included part of superannuation. That leads us to our next topic. Superannuation, what's included? Everything. Bingo. The easiest way to answer this is all of superannuation is included, um, be it to employees, be it to directors. You know, anyone who's receiving superannuation from your business, you need to declare that for payroll tax. And it's not just a matter of declaring the superannuation guarantee charge. Currently, it's 9.5%. But if your business pays higher than that, 10%, 11%, 12%, doesn't matter what, you don't just declare the minimum 9.5%. You need to declare exactly the amount that is being paid as per your business's contributions towards an employee superannuation. I'm looking at company directors, for example, because there are lots of scenarios where we find that businesses have their directors pumping money into super and forgetting to have that declared um, for payroll tax purposes. Now, yes, it is the safest bet to simply say that all amounts contributed into super are liable, but there are certain types of payments like top-up contributions to defined benefit schemes. If it's pre-1996 contribution, that it's not going to be considered as liable for payroll tax here when we're dealing with defined benefit schemes. Brings us to the next topic. The next thing we're looking at when we're looking at liable wages is termination payments. You know, payments that are being made to an employee, to a director, to a contractor for, you know, uh, as the, the final payments towards their services to your business. Everything we've talked about normally has a golden rule. So so let's attach a golden rule to so this as well. You, you like to use your tip of the day. For me, it's always about the golden rules. Yes. And, and the one for termination payments is if it's income taxable, it's a payroll taxable. So this is one where we do marry up with the ATO here. So if it's income taxable in the hands of the recipient, it's going to be payroll taxable. So we need to consider who's receiving this amount and whether it's going to be income taxable in their hands. When we're talking about termination payments, we're talking about all payments when someone either leaves, they're fired, or they're made redundant, or they may even die. To speak more readily about the situation, if something happens like that, we need to consider the taxable status of that um, amount that of remuneration, which is getting, getting paid out. So the, the golden rule, as I mentioned here, is if it's income taxable, it's payroll taxable, and that holds true in all circumstances. So it's all the pay in lieu, contract payouts, golden handshakes and severance payments, which are going to be liable for payroll tax. So then the question might become, well, what isn't income taxable? And the most common one to consider here is your genuine redundancy component, which is not income taxable. You can leave that out, but everything else that's paid out is liable. The next component we're going to look at is leave payments. Earlier, we were talking about, you know, all payments we look at in a month period, you know, where was the services performed, where were the payments made and things like that. But leave is something you accrue throughout the year. So we use the same principle as multi-month payments. Even though it's accrued throughout the year, we see it as when it's paid. When it's paid, be it sick leave, annual leave, long service leave, leave loading, anything associated with leave is liable. It is just declared when it's paid, following the nexus provisions. And in the seminar notes, you have a very interesting example. There's a lady who's worked for 15 years for a company, and just before her retirement, she moves from Queensland to New South Wales when she receives her final yep. 
Yeah, long service leave. Exactly, long service leave payment, and then the entire amount is taxable in New South Wales and not in Queensland. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. focus so much on, you know, what's. Yeah. what's you happened. win some, you lose some. Yeah. So, exactly. Queensland, in that example that you've just. Lost, would have lost, but they would have, lost, lost, yeah. would, have, would have gained in another example. Correct. But I think it's a very good rule because it makes it so much easier. If you started allocating the payments to the relevant months and so on. Yeah, I think everybody would go crazy. Well, so service leave. Just look at look at um, you know Revenue New South Wales. We have had employees here for 40, 45 years, and and upon them you know retiring and things like that, try tracking back forty five years worth of cruel. Mm. You know you're going to have to employ six seven people on your own yeah. to do that. Yeah. So just follow the payment. Yeah. Just follow the payment in that month when it's paid or payable. Yeah. When it's paid or payable. Next one's director's fees. Now. This is very important because there's there's quite a lot of compliance around this, okay? Because we're not just looking at, you know, directors getting getting payments through payroll, you know? Now we also look at are there payments being made to directors through to an external body, you know, their own company, their own private super fund, uh, external payroll service, right? So when it comes to director's fees, the principle here to remember is if the services are being performed by the director, you know, regardless of where the payment's going, it's going to be liable for payroll tax, be it a working director or a non-working director. You know, just because someone comes, you know, annually or, you know, every six months and sits on the board and gets a one-off payment, you know, made to their own business or their own company, you can't exclude that payment, you know, automatically. You see? That person has provided a service to your business. It falls back to that whole concept of remuneration. Did this individual provide a service to your business? Did you, you know, remunerate for them for that service? Yes, there's a liability. So for directors, be it a working director, non-working director, payments are made to them regardless of if they're paid directly to them or a third party, is liable for payroll tax. The only time you're able to exempt a payment that is made to an external business is where you're able to demonstrate that it's not just the director providing that service, it's that business that provides that service. Once you're able to do that, then we go down the contractor provisions. Now, the legislation is quite clear. Amounts paid to a director on appointment are also subject to payroll tax because it's going to be for them to perform services. So it's like a bonus up front. So these amounts are also subject to payroll tax. Employers are providing employee share and option schemes to their employees. And these are called either ESSs or, or ESOPs for the acronym of what some people are referring to them as, where the employer will provide a certain amount of shares or options to an employee and that will be on, they might just outright give it to them and there'll be a grant date and say, here's, the here's an x amount of shares 100 shares and, and they're for you or they might put a contractual agreement around it where they'll say look we're going to give you 100 shares but you have to be working for us for say three years now that would is what we refer to as a vesting date a vesting condition now for from a payroll tax point of view we will have two choices for the business to choose from in terms of when they declare it. Upfront, which is the grant day, or on vesting day, which is 
at, at the end of that when they meet that condition. And the income tax also has rules around that. The key word there is risk of forfeiture. Does payroll tax follow the income tax rules there? Yes, it does. And for example, when we're dealing with options, if they don't declare within seven years, on the seventh anniversary, we take it as being exercised and therefore liable for, for payroll tax on that seventh anniversary. If the employee doesn't meet those requirements, but it's already been declared up front on the granting date, those shares are therefore rescinded and therefore you may have paid payroll tax incorrectly because they never received the rights to those shares. So that being said, you would then you'd need to make an adjustment, adjustment yeah. but you don't go back to that financial year. That's what's key about shares and options here for payroll tax purposes. We just make the adjustment in the current financial year. But most companies would include the um, employee share schemes at the time of vesting, wouldn't they? And we have seen cases of both. Oh, okay. It's a risk analysis that the business needs to decide. The, the shares are $10 today. In three years, that could be 15 So you declare it up front, you're not paying as much payroll tax. You declare it three years later, oh, yeah, and the shares go up, point. and suddenly you've got you know a third more or you know 50% higher liability. But on the flip side could happen. Today they were $10, three years later they're $8. But it's a decision. And for that reason, what we do is we don't allow um, businesses to, you know, readjust the annual REC. So, you know, with most things we say, you know, it's a voluntary disclosure. If you haven't included superannuation two years ago, you need to go back and adjust that yeah, annual with REC. With those things you can't you adjust. Can't because it's a decision you make now towards when do you make that decision. You can adjust it if you haven't included it or if you have included it in the future time because we don't want you to, to pay payroll tax more than you have to. So if you've declared it and that that individual didn't invest or didn't take up the shares, well, I've overpaid payroll tax. So in that, you know, whatever year that was vesting, you can go ahead and exempt it so you get your money back. I see, but you can't adjust the market value you use. Yes, yes. that That's the key here. We want you to decide up front what's going to happen. If you lapse and you don't declare it on the grant date, it's automatically on the vesting day. Yeah, yeah. If it falls outside of the financial year in which it was granted, to be specific, right, you must choose the vesting date. You can't go back and adjust that financial year and include it there. So you've got to make a decision up front. It is a gamble like the share market is itself. You've got to choose up front, grant or vest, and stick with it. And it's going to be subject to the market value on either one of those days. Now, if the shares are unvalued because they're not on the, the stock exchange, you'd need to have them valued. So buy an accredited valuer and, and then allocate the correct evaluation there. But you'd need to get apply the ATO provisions in terms of the valuation of the shares or options. Okay, And also another thing we need to consider here is that power tax is a tax on the employer. So the amount that the employer contributes is what's going to be taxed, is going to be liable. It's not the employee contribution to those shares because they might have a buy-in option. A choice here. So you might contribute 50-50. So the employer's 50% discount is what's of value. It's the employer contribution towards that, um, which is going to be tax, is going to be the liable amount. If a business says, we're going to give you shares in something totally different, another company completely, this is a fringe benefit and not subject to these rules that we're talking about here. You treat it how it's treated under the FBT rules.
Okay, so it brings us to certain types of payments that are not liable. And, and the first one is workers' comp. Now, so with workers' compensation payments, the amounts up to the limit of whatever the insurer provides is not liable for payroll tax. You can leave out that amount that the insurer provides. So let's say, for example, the let's say an employee gets $1,000 a week, but the insurer provides $900. That $900 of whatever the insurer provides is what can be left, left out in your calculation because it's not liable for payroll tax. Why do we see it like this? Is because we don't see it as remuneration, but rather as an insurance payment. Compensation. So yeah, correct. So we leave. So whatever the insurer provides is what we leave out. But that, let's say you were to continue to pay that extra one hundred dollars as top up payment because you don't want that employee to not get that extra one hundred dollars. That make up pay, that top up pay, would be subject to payroll tax. But whatever the insurer provides is to be left out. Okay. The next things to be considered, as we've kind of mentioned earlier, is to do with dividends, partnership drawings, and trust distributions. These are not subject to payroll tax because they are seen as profit distributions, not subject to payroll tax because it's not, for example, like we mentioned earlier with dividends, it is the shares that are performing the work there, not the not the employee. So it's the performance of the shares or in terms of a, a distribution to the be- beneficiaries of a trust. It's based on the profit distribution, so it's not remuneration and not liable. GST, we always leave it out, and direct reimbursements, as we mentioned earlier, with um, petty cash is not subject to payroll tax. The Commonwealth paid parental leave, the 18 weeks which is funneled or channeled through the employer, is not subject to payroll tax. And this is this may be paid on top of maternity, paternity leave, which an employer may offer. Jury duty payments. Unfortunately, there's no exemption for jury duty payments. Okay, so unfortunately, you can't leave out whatever you ordinarily pay your employee, but the amount that the courts may may provide is what can be left out. If you need to contact the office, the starting point is always the general inquiries number, 1300 139 815, or you can send us an email to tax at revenue.nsw.gov.au. But a lot of this information is going to be on our website. There's a lot of documentation, revenue rulings, fact sheets, blurbs about you know how to apply, what is payroll tax, how do we review things. And for that, just go to our website at www.revenue.nsw.gov.au. But we also have webinars and seminars that you can book in for on our website. And we also have a webinar library. So you can have a look at webinars that we've done in the past um, on specific topics. But if you did want to contact us besides on the phone, you can always send us an email as well, prt.newclient at revenue.newsouthwales.gov.au. If you have a general question, yeah, you can call us up and get that general information or you can find it on our website. But if you are asking for specific information, follow it up with an email. That way you have a track record. And if you are ever investigated in an audit, you can demonstrate that you had this conversation, you took reasonable care, you're doing your best to, to do the right thing. It all helps to justify your position because otherwise it becomes a he said, she said type of scenario and um, we want to prevent that type of thing happening but the rules do change legislation changes you know revenue rulings change so we always say at least once a year attend one of our seminars or attend one of our webinars so you are aware if there are any changes to how we apply what's audited 
is your annual rec. So definitely before the end of the year, definitely contact the office and attend one of our seminars, webinars. As a minimum, we'd recommend that all businesses register for our online email subscription service because that way, if there is any change, you're the first to know. You know, the final tip of the day is here at Revenue New South Wales, we're here to help. And if you have an inquiry, give us a call. Welcome back. So this was an overview of Australia's payroll tax system. We briefly touched on contractor and grouping provisions today, but because these are so complex and so important, we will talk about these in a lot more detail in another episode. Payroll tax exemptions and rebates haven't been harmonized and probably never will. And so each state and territory does their own thing which we didn't discuss today either, but we'll do soon. In the next episode, episode 2, Chloe Ward will give us six reasons why offshoring SMSF work to an overseas provider isn't always such a good idea. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.